Please remain standing and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, now and awaken our slumbering hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, now and kindle our cold hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, now and soften our hard hearts that you might give us the ability to receive the truth of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you think it's hot here, <laughs> amen. All right. Back when uh, Lisa and I were serving in our first church out in Alamance County, a little country church in Alamance County, our first daughter, Rebecca, was about four years old, and we were remarking to my mom and dad about the dramatic pr uh, answers to prayer that she was receiving. She's this little believing four-year-old girl, and she's going to her heavenly father, and she's asking stuff of him, and evidently he was just as success, uh, susceptible to her Im uh, imploring as I was, and she was getting these amazing answers to prayer. Some of you know the story about the swing set. I won't tell it this morning, but suffice it to say that Rebecca prayed, uh, prayed for a swing set that we could in no wise afford, and uh, God evidently uh, has a direct line to Sears and Roebuck uh, because he miraculously provided it. Well, my mom and dad, after hearing those stories, would ask us to make sure that if they had a prayer request, that Rebecca would be praying for them. Because she obviously had an inside scoop with God, and her prayers were being heard, and they wanted some of that action. And so they wanted her effective prayers on their behalf. Well, you know what, friends? We have someone even more effective in prayer than a four-year-old believing child interceding before the Father's throne for us this morning. We have our Lord Jesus Christ who is praying for you as an individual and corporately for his church right now. He is praying for us. Now just take a look, if you will, with me at uh, the verb tense. If you have your Bible open there to John 17, if you look at that prayer, this what we call the great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and at one point, Jesus prays as if he has already come through the cross and resurrection. And of course, this prayer is being prayed on the night before all of the events of the Lord's passion and the subsequent resurrection of our Lord. He's praying this on the night that he washes his disciples' feet. And yet, his, it sounds almost as if he's already come through the cross and resurrection and is ascending to the Father's right hand. So in verse 11, Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world. Well, you're standing right there. What do you mean you're no longer in the world? But Listen to that verb tense. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Now, here's the point. And I think John intentionally, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making this connection. Jesus did not just pray that prayer on the night before he was crucified. I believe that this is a part of his ongoing, not complete, but a part of his ongoing intercession for us as our great high priest. As a matter of fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. For who? For us. For his disciples. He is interceding even now. 
N.T. Wright reminds us that in the first century, in the physical temple, there is one room into which only one person goes, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest once a year makes atonement for the sins of the people. Now, with John 17, we follow Jesus into the equivalent place. Up to now, Jesus has been talking to his friends about the Father. Now he is talking to the Father about his friends. Up till now, he has been talking to his friends about the Father. Now he is talking to the Father about his friends. So as we look at this prayer, we should make this connection. You know, when you and I pray, we are offering up before God the things that we are most concerned about, the things we care most deeply about. We pray about what is on our hearts, and we should expect nothing less of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying for what is on His heart, what He cares most deeply about. And what He cares most deeply about in this prayer is His disciples, for you and for me. This is the heart prayer of Jesus for you, His follower. And so the first thing that Jesus prays for us is for, for our protection. He is praying for our protection. He prays that the Father would guard us and keep us, that we would be, we would be guarded and we would be kept by the Father. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them, keep them in your name. When it says something about the name in, in both the Old or New Testaments, especially when speaking of God, the name of God, do this in your name, it means all of the attributes, all of the character, all of the power of God is, is ensconced in, encapsulated in His very name. And so God and Almighty Father, in your name, with all your attributes, guard and keep this flock, these disciples of mine. You know, the longer I live, the longer I live, the more I am convinced of the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, I think that some of us are a little, we, we operate as if this is all up to us and we need to keep bootstrapping ourselves up so that we stay uh, nice and saved. I just need to keep me saved. Well, that's not your job. That's God's job, and He is a lot better at it than you are. We can relax. You are kept. You are guarded. I believe that when Jesus asks for things, the Father answers Him. He will answer Him. Jesus is praying for us to be kept and to be guarded. Now, He doesn't pray for us not to have hardship. He doesn't even pray that we would be protected from suffering in His name. That's not what He's asking for. So what kind of protection, what kind of keeping is Jesus praying for? He is praying that we would be protected from falling away. And we need that prayer because Jesus almost know He does guaranteed that in this, pray, in this prayer, He guarantees that we, His church and believers as individuals, will be the objects of the world's hostility the hatred of the world. I have given them your word. And the world, Jesus says in verse 14, the world has hated them. How does the world feel about Jesus' disciples? Well, according to Jesus, oh, you Christians have a persecution complex. We didn't come up with this. He told us. 
The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask for you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. So if we want a religion that makes us universally popular, that wins us the affection and accolades and applause and approval of the world, then following Jesus Christ is not the religion for us. If you want a religion where people are not feeling hostile about what you do in your spiritual life, Christianity is not the one for you. You know, there has been a flurry. I think, I think that's probably the correct, uh, you know, you have murders of crows, you have prides of lions. We've had a flurry of books and research that, was, that has come out in the, in, in the last 10, 15 years. Some of it from Barna, some of it from Pew. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly bringing to mind some research by the Barna Group, which goes into great detail about why the world hates us. As if, you know, if we only could be, and they have, there's a list, and um, there's a book that came out again about 10 years ago. I think it was Kenneman, and I can't remember the other uh, contributor to the book. Uh, the, the, name, the name of the book is Unchristian. I think it's Unchristian. And, and, and it lists like seven categories why, why the world hates us. Well, as if we, if we just could clean up our act, all this hostility would go away. No, let me tell you what, brothers and sisters. If we, did, if we ticked every one of those boxes that Kenneman and the other researcher put forth, and we got all that straight, we would still be the object of the world's hatred because we are not of this world. We do not belong to this world. We belong to the Father through Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, that you can be woke, you can be culturally relevant, you can be progressive, you can drink tea, green tea, you can be a social justice warrior, but as soon as you identify yourself as an authentic, sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, you can expect the hostility of the world to come your way. Now, when we talk about the world in this way, we're not talking about the beautiful creation that is around us. You know, the beautiful trees, uh, the beautiful countryside, the beautiful pollen. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a world system. As N.T. Wright says, the world is what is out there when people try to run their lives as though God did not exist. And that's where the hostility is coming from. The world hates us because we do not belong to the world. We are the sand under the eyelid of the world. N.T. Wright again says, we are living in the middle of a major cultural turning point and the cold winds of the world's hatred are blowing more sharply against those who speak for God, who live for God, whose lives show by their holiness that they belong to God and not to the world. This also means, and I often feel this way, and maybe you do too, it's like, I just don't feel like I fit in. I wonder if, if I went to another country, would I fit in? Would I fit in in Ireland? You know, it's cooler there. Uh, you know, would I, would I fit in in Germany? Would I fit in, in a, is there, you know, Bolivia? Uruguay? You know, is there some place I could go where I would fit in? Well, here's the deal, brothers and sisters. If you feel like you don't fit in, you will never feel like you fit in. In fact, we shouldn't feel like we fit in. We don't fit in because we don't belong here. You and I are made for another homeland. You and I, through our birth 
through the new birth in the Holy Spirit, by the virtue of our baptism, we belong in another country. And we will never feel fully at home here. If you do feel fully at home here, you may have a spiritual problem. But if we're citizens of the kingdom, that's the place where we will ultimately fit in. We should be loving and thoughtful and Christ-like in all our dealings, but that is not going to change the world's attitude about the church or about you. In fact, Jesus seems to indicate in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, that the more like him we become as his disciples, the more the world will hate his disciples. Friends, Jesus promises that the world will hate you if you genuinely follow him. So we need to pray along with our Lord Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit will give us the backbone right now in this season to stand up to that hostility. Jesus prays that we will be kept from falling away even in the face of the world's hatred. But that is not the end of the story. In this prayer itself, there is good news. Jesus says, he promises by his prayer, he promises joy, 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 even in the face of the world's hatred. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. What does Jesus pray to the Father? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is Christ's joy? Christ's joy? It is the very joy, the very merriment. It is the dance that it goes on from all eternity past to all eternity future that is within the very life of the Holy Trinity. We are being, he is praying that the joy that birthed creation would be alive in our hearts as well. It is an unconquerable creative force. It is a force that is able to stand above all of the darkness that we see around us and maintain a joyful disposition. I like what Elton Trueblood has written. He says, any alleged Christian which fails to express in himself gaiety at some point is clearly, any, or excuse me, any alleged Christianity which fails to express itself in gaiety, is at some point clearly spurious. The Christian is merry, not because he is blind to injustice and suffering, and, but because he is convinced that these, in light of the divine sovereignty, are never ultimate. He is convinced that the unshakable purpose is the divine rule in all things, whether of heaven or earth. Though he can be sad and often is perplexed, he is never really worried. The well-known humor of the Christian is not a way of denying the tears, but rather a way of affirming something which is deeper than tears. Now, the second thing that Jesus prays for, he's praying for our, our guarding, our joy, but he also prays that we would be at one. We would, there would, we would be one as he and the Father are one. Again, this is a, an attribute of the inner life of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Trinity. It's the unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is praying, just as he prayed for the joy within the life of the Trinity to be ours, he's praying for the unity that is expressed within the life of the Holy Trinity to be ours as well, which is a perfect unity with diversity. Again, back to that verse, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
Now, obviously, to be one is to be united. Jesus prays for the unity of the disciples. This is one of the reasons I personally, Ben Sharp, this is one of the reasons I am an Anglican. I wanted to be part of the biggest group of Christians I could be in as someone who loves the great Catholic tradition of the church yet is committed fully to the Reformation and to the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this was the biggest bunch of people like that I could find. It was Anglicanism. So I am now part of a family that has 80 million members worldwide from every ethnic group in the world, and I deeply yearn for that group to grow even larger, that there might be even greater unity in the truth of the gospel. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, all genuine unity is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and by extension through his gospel. To st sometimes, and I think in the, in the past, certainly in the early 20th century, the ecumenical movement that began in that era sought to de-emphasize Christian doctrine because, um, you, what was it, doctrine divides, doctrine divides. Well, I don't think doctrine does divide. I think doctrine is a way of discerning what is true. And so I don't think truth is divisive. People that disagree with the truth aren't united. But I think doctrine is a part of the source of our unity. And we can be happy about that. We don't have to tone down the gospel. We don't have to tone down our doctrine. We don't have to tone down our adherence to the word of God. It goes back to the whole hostility of the, wor uh, the world to the church thing. If we could only just keep toning down the gospel so that it was not quite so irritating to the world around us until finally the only way that that works is when you stop being the church at all and you just become the world. And some folks have gotten there. But more than just mere structural unity, throughout John's gospel, oneness, commun the communion of the Father and the Son is presented as one of deep intimacy. Friends, Jesus prays that our unity as believers would not just be a surface friendliness, but also a deep sharing of our lives with one another. And if that is the case, I want to suggest to you what I think is the greatest threat to Christian unity right now is not division over doctrine or over social issues. Those things can be divisive, I guess. I think true doctrine, again, as I said, unites. Here's what I think the, great, the most genuine threat to Christian unity is, is that we are all too busy to share our lives with each other. You don't have time for me, and I don't have time for you. And you know what that means? There's not really unity. And if, if, I could, if I could pray, if I could say, Jesus, would you add something to your prayer for us, please? It would be, Lord Jesus, would you please ask the Father to help us repent of the things that are consuming our time that seem urgent but have no eternal significance so that we can spend the time that you call us to in being together as a body and loving one another. It should begin with our life groups. That's the very first place we should do that. So John Fawcett's wonderful hymn, I think, captures the character of that Christian unity that I'm talking about. You know this hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, Our Hearts in Christian Love. 
The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before the Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims, our one, our comforts, and our cares. We can't do that if we're not with each other and we don't know each other. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Now, Jesus also adds another dimension to this prayer. He prays that you and I would be different. He prays that we would be different. Some of us are there. Jesus prays in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify here means to set apart for holy, for holy use, to make distinct, to make difference. In other words, Jesus is praying that his disciples would be different from the world. We are to be in this world, but not of this world. We should look different, noticeably, demonstrably, demonstrably different from the world. And that means that Jesus prays for us to be sanctified, uh, and the means by which he uh, prays for this to happen is through his word, through the word of God. The word of God is the chief means of Christ's sanctifying work in the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. God's word is all of God's self-revelation in Scripture and supremely in the person of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus repeatedly emphasizes the Word of God in this passage. Many of us love the example of Jesus, but we don't know what he said, really. And if we don't, then his sanctifying power is impeded in our lives, or, or maybe even worse, we do know what he said, and it embarrasses us in front of our friends. We need to drink deeply of the word of God because God, because that is God's preferred means of grace to make us sanctified, different, set apart from the world. So what we listen to, what we watch, what we fill our minds with will determine the course of our lives. We are constantly tempted to give ourselves over to other stories, other narratives, rather than the narrative of Scripture, whether it's talk radio or maybe the, the newest long-form cable drama or broadcast news or Facebook or Twitter, all of those are not the Scriptures. The Scriptures give us a totally different story, a totally different narrative than that which is promoted by the world. The Bible has a distinct story over against the world about who my neighbor is or what gives life its meaning, or what in fact it means to be a human person, or the purpose of marriage and sexuality, or how to conduct business, or the purpose of wealth and possessions, or how we are to care for the natural world God has created. All of that is dealt with in Scripture, and the, means, and the story that Scripture gives in those topics is a distinctly different story from the world's understanding. No one likes to be out of step with the crowd, but as Christians, that's actually our calling. That's our vocation, to go the different direction. You know, uh, I, I remember um, back long ago, the last time I was in Disney World was, I think, in 1856. 
Uh, no, I mean, it was a long time ago, I mean, over 20 years ago, because our kids were little. And uh, I remember that one of the things that is a sociological reality is that in a, in a group setting like that, if, uh, if you have multiple entrances, people will gravitate to the right-hand line, at least in the West. Maybe they gravitate to the left-hand line where they drive on the wrong side of the road. I'm not sure. But in our culture, people gra gravitate to the right-hand side. And so one of the things that I notice is all the crowd is just lined up to get into whatever Space Mountain or whatever. I mean, they are plumb lined up out, out and around. And nobody, there's not a single Disney employee telling you to do this, by the way. You have to figure this out on your own. But right beside that big old line, there's another place where you could go in on just to the left of that, and nobody's standing there. And so what we figured out was don't follow the crowd. Get out of that line and go and look and see if there's a different entrance. 99% of the time, there was another way in, and we just cruised right on by. We're called not to follow the crowd. It's our calling to be distinct. And you might get to the front of the line. So there. Finally, Jesus' prayer is also a commissioning prayer. He sends us into the world, into hostile territory on a mission. Listen to what Jesus is praying. As you sent me, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus prays that his disciples will carry on his mission in the world. That mission is to love and to reconcile the world to God, to be his kingdom presence. In fact, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Enemy territory, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And all the teenagers are saying, yay, sabotage. We are called to throw our sabot, our shoes, into the cogs of the machine of this world and give a new way of being in this world, a way of living out the kingdom reality. We are called, we are called to holy sabotage. You know, the world will tell you that it might possibly consider letting you have your Jesus, possibly, if you can keep him quiet and shut up within the four walls of your church. Now, actually, that's being eroded as well. And so now they say you can keep him shut up and, and keep, if you can keep him all inside of the tiny four walls of your brain, maybe somewhere back there on the medulla. You know, just keep him back there and don't talk about him. Don't express your Christianity. It's okay. You can keep him shut up, safe, innocuous, and tame, but not claiming, not claiming that he is the only way to be God in a world that doesn't want to be in relationship with God in the first place. Not talking about race. Oh, don't let him get out and start talking about politics. Not intruding into the entertainment or the media or the acad academy sectors, spheres of society. Oh, don't let him get out there and talk about the societal devastation that is ruining a generation, and we call it pornography. It is destroying families. It is destroying particularly uh, husband, the, the ability for husbands and wives to be together in the relationship for which they were created. It is polluting the minds of young men and, yes, young women as well. It is wreaking havoc, and we don't want to have to hear what Jesus says about that. 
We don't want him out there challenging the rapacious greed of the marketplace or personal hedonism and consumerism, the things that we adopt as just being the ordinary and normal way that the world operates. Oh, don't let him out to talk about, don't put him on mission, don't be on mission into the world as his representative to talk about the holocaust of abortion or offering your unsolicited opinions on marriage and family, Jesus. We don't want you speaking about a just stewardship of the environment that equally rebukes those who pollute and destroy the environment as well as those who worship the false goddess Gaia. Because that's what some of this really is, is nature worship. And we don't want to hear what, the, what Jesus has to say about that. But you know what? Jesus doesn't leave us that option. He has sent us into mission to continue to talk about those things in this world. We don't get a pass. We are still going to be the sand under the eyelid of the world. Jesus says, I have sent them into the world just as a father in his love has sent me into the world. Because God loves this world and wants to save it and bring it back home to himself and to restore it and redeem it and to make it beautiful again, that is our mission. And strangely enough, strangely enough, that actually happens. It begins at this table of all the places where I thought I was going to come. Listen, I thought I was going to come to communion and have me a good old vertical me and Jesus moment. Me and Jesus, maybe some angels. Occasionally somebody next to me in a pew, but really, this is my me and Jesus moment. But what we find here in this moment of greatest communion with our Lord is that he's sending us out from this table to continue to be his presence in the world. And so Alexander Schmemann writes, The church is not a society for escape, corporately or individually, from this world to taste of the mystical bliss of eternity. Communion is not a mystical experience. We drink of the chalice of Christ, and he gave himself for the life of the world. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, if you, it, what communion is about is you're confronted with the life of Christ who gave himself for the life of the world. The bread on the paten and the wine and the chalice are to remind us of the incarnation of the Son of God, of the cross and death, and thus... It is the very joy of the kingdom in this moment that makes us remember the world and to pray for it. It is the very communion with the Holy Spirit that enables us to love the world with the love of Christ. The Eucharist is the sacrament of unity and the moment of truth. Here we see the world in Christ as it really is. Do you hear? Listen, here we see in this moment, we see the world as it really is through Jesus Christ. We see the world as it is. It is a world that is a dark and wicked place and that would kill the greatest gift God would send it. And yet we also see the world through the eyes of Christ, through Christ, because it is a dark and brutal place that God loved so much that he would give his life. Intercession begins here in the glory of the messianic banquet, and this is the only true beginning of the church's mission. It is when, having put aside all earthly care, we seem to have left this world, that in fact we recover it in all its reality. Brothers and sisters, you are being prayed for now. You will be sustained by 
our great high priest prayer today so that you can leave from this place and be his ongoing presence in the world on mission for the life of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you to